And one of the books I have mentioned over the years has been a very good book uh, called One Nation Under God by David Gibbs and Jerry Newcomb. And they're very good friends. And that is a book that I've used kind of for the outline. But a newer book that's come out is this one, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. Now, each one of these verses only has about two or three pages. So if you say, look, I'm not going to read a whole book, but I might want to read the uh, little short chapters. Um, There's 100 chapters, 100 verses. And as we go through this, I think you'll benefit from this. It is written by Robert Morgan. Those of you that are men, right? remember, he came and spoke to us at the men's retreat. Um, if you are familiar with Red Sea Rules and some other books, I mean, he has written so many great books over the years. Uh, one of the endorsements of this book comes from Jack Graham. So I'm going to use that one as some of these verses. And with that, we're going to get into it because the first thing we want to do is talk about the pilgrims. Now, the verse that he has in there is Ezra 8.23. The first thing you're going to notice is that some of these founders of our country and some of the framers of the Constitution, they knew their Bible probably better than us. If I ask you right now in a sword drill to find the book of Ezra, (laughs) it might take a few minutes. Some of you would be looking at the table of contents, right? But this was the sermon which was preached on Ezra 8.21, which was actually preached by John Robinson as they were leaving the Netherlands coming to this country, and it's a verse having to do with the people leaving from captivity going to the promised land. If you're not familiar with the pilgrims, of course, they were originally known as the founders or the forefathers. The name pilgrim was given to them later on, uh, based on 1 Peter 2.11. That was given to them by William Bradford. And as you may know the story, they were in England. They were separatists. They had really challenged the Church of England, eventually left England in the Netherlands, and then decided, working with a colonial charter, to go to the New World to establish a colony. Well, they had a charter for what today would be called New York. Back then it was called Northern Virginia. They were blown off course. Maybe it's possible that the sailors even took them intentionally off course. And they find themselves at Cape Cod. So before they left, they also then had to write a new charter, which is the Mayflower Compact. We'll get to that in just a minute, uh, because it then is one of these other verses uh, that you see here as well, based on Psalm 107. The Mayflower Compact uh, starts in the name of God, amen. It ends, of course, in the year of our Lord, 1620. They recognized that they did not have a charter here, so they actually gathered together and wrote what many people say was the first Constitution of America. When I was in the graduate school at Georgetown University, one of my major professors who taught American political theory, to put it mildly, could not sign the doctrinal statement of Prestonwood Baptist Church, but nevertheless had to admit that this religious document really was the first Constitution in America and formed a principle for the one that we have as well. But don't take his word for it or my word for it. One very prominent British historian, a man by the name of Paul Johnson, wrote a book, A History of the American People, another book I might recommend as well. And he says what was remarkable about this particular contract was it was not between a servant and a master or between a people and a king, but for the first time it's now a group of like-minded individuals with each other as God is witness and symbolic co-signatory. Paul Johnson, uh, Winston Churchill, and others have talked about how significant the Mayflower Compact was, and that uh, gets us into this idea as well. A couple of lessons we can learn from the pilgrims before we move on. One of those is religious liberty. 
Uh, there have been a lot of attacks on religious liberty. If you ever listen to my radio program, we on Fridays almost always have Kelly Shackelford or Jay Sekulow or someone to talk about some of these issues of religious liberty. And this was what motivated the pilgrims to come here in the first place, because they were separatists. They had rejected the Church of England and Henry VIII and that. So they went first to Leiden in the Netherlands, but then were very concerned about how the kids, their children, were being uh, very poorly influenced by that and decided to come to the New World to what? To actually enjoy the religious freedom that we enjoy here today. Pastor Graham spoke to that issue as well. They also not only gave us a lesson about politics and religion, they also gave us a lesson about the economy. Because when they landed, the charter that they had told them that they were to work the land, they would put the actual goods in the common storage, and then each would receive according to their particular needs. To uh, paraphrase that, they were all, each was working according to their ability, and each was receiving according to their needs. There was a problem with that. About a hundred years later, a man by the name of Karl Marx came up with that idea, and uh, this never really works very well because there were some that didn't work very hard because actually there were no benefits to that. And after the first year where half, a pillion, half of the people there died, William Bradford said, okay, this idea of communal farming is not working well, and instituted what today we would call a free enterprise system. He assigned plots of land to each family that they could work, they worked to actually contribute partially to the common stores, but then they could also benefit from their work and thus sell that, and thus uh, there was uh, an entrepreneurial activity, and it was one of the things that made the uh, particular Plymouth colony flourish. So you can see this is in 1621. You don't even have the first document sort of justifying free market until 1776, when the Wealth of Nations was written. By the way, 1776 was a pretty good year, wasn't it? There were just a number of things that happened at that particular time. Well, let's keep moving. Uh, because one of the other um, sections, we move from the Pilgrims, primarily in Massachusetts, to now the Puritans, more kind of which today we would call Rhode Island. You see Matthew 5:14. that's the idea of the city on a hill. And the Puritans are a little bit different. And a lot of people say, what's the difference between a pilgrim and a Puritan? Well, the pilgrims were those who were separatists. They wanted to separate from the Church of England. They would be like people that are in a um, liberal church or in a liberal denomination. They finally say, we're just going to leave the church. The Puritans, on the other hand, wanted to actually purify the church, so they remained within the church trying to purify the Church of England. And so they were very different. But again, uh, John Winthrop, in this particular case, gave this very famous sermon about the fact that they wanted to be a city on a hill. Can you think of any president or politicians that's ever used that phrase, city on a hill? Ronald Reagan would be one, but many others. And so that goes all the way back to the Puritans as well. The benefit we will see as we get into the Constitution in just a minute is, is that they also decided as Puritans to actually put down their various liberties and to write them down. In England, it pretty much was just an oral tradition. But the problem with an oral tradition, you ever had somebody say, I promise to do that, and then a week later say, no, I didn't promise that. It's not written down, right? And so they recognized how important it was to anchor their liberties in the written page, which were part of really these idea of covenants. 
these Bible covenants now became Puritan covenants. And I thought for just a minute, let me just help you understand how that as well was so significant in the founding of this country and the framing of the Constitution. If you have some time today or over the weekend, you might think about uh, typing in on Google the Body of Liberties, which were written in 1641, and look at the 98 different protections that were actually there in Puritan New England. Due process of law, equal protection, trial by a jury of peers. Those are the kind of things we take for granted today. How about that last one? Prohibitions against cruel and unusual punishment. Where is that phrase found? In the Eighth Amendment of the United States Constitution. But the United States Constitution wasn't written until, what, 1788 and 89. But you had some of these principles already showing up in 1641. So again, you can see the legacy of faith in this regard. Well, let's move on because between the Pilgrims and the Puritans and before the American Revolution, you have the Great Awakening. And here, this is actually in a particular section here called America's Most Famous Sermon, because in Deuteronomy 32:35, their foot shall slip in due time. And that is a famous sermon given by Jonathan Edwards. Do you remember the name of that sermon? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he, preaching this sermon in New England, as he was talking about the fact that God will bring a judgment, and God can bring a judgment, and your foot will slip if you are not obedient to him. And as he is reading this sermon before the congregation, there are people crying. There are people speaking out. There are people uh, calling for God to provide grace and mercy, and as he points out in the church, this revival just sprung out like a flash of lightning. Pastor Graham today was talking about the need for a revival. Would you agree with that? I think we need just more than a revival. I think we need a reformation. But here, Jonathan Edwards began to see this developing all through New England, but it developed in other places in the colonies as well, because George Whitfield actually was British, but he began to go and up and down the eastern seaboard would begin to preach in these open-air crusades. Matter of fact, one of his close friends, interesting enough, was Benjamin Franklin. Not sure how whether Benjamin Franklin ever accepted the Lord, but nevertheless, he certainly heard the gospel. And George Whitfield would call people to come forward in these open-air crusades. And if you were to watch one of those crusades back in 1740 and 1750, you would say, this looks like a Billy Graham crusade. This looks like Greg Glory. And a lot of the ideas that today are used in open-air crusades go all the way back to George Whitfield. And the impact on that is really dramatic, because Ball Johnson, who I quoted just a minute ago, argued that the Great Awakening may have touched as many as three out of four American colonists. As he preached up and down, the eastern seaboard had these huge crusades, and so many people actually heard the gospel committed their life to the gospel. And Paul Johnson even says that that may have sounded the death knell to British colonialism because up until that time, the colonists thought of themselves as a colony in South Carolina, a colony in Virginia, a colony in Massachusetts. Now they began to think of themselves as Americans. A lot of people are convinced that that itself was instrumental in what came to be known as the American Revolution. 
Well, while I'm talking about clergy, and I won't spend a lot of time on this other than to mention there's some great resources I want to put in your hands, we can see that uh, the clergy were very important. As a matter of fact, there were many uh, in the British army that were convinced that the clergy were what they called the Black Regiment. Why did they call them that? Well, they wore black robes, and they were convinced that the preaching from the pulpits in the 18th century were motivating individuals to go out and to actually fight against the British. And John Adams, our second um, president, our first vice president, uh, basically in 1818 said that the revolution really came about because the revolution was in the hearts and minds of individuals. And when he wrote that in 1818, he actually went on to talk about the fact that he was convinced that the American Revolution came because of a spiritual revival. And when he mentioned two people that he thought were most instrumental in bringing about the American Revolution, they were both pastors. One was Dr. Mayhew, the other was Dr. Cooper. Now, I don't care if you majored in American history, you have probably never heard those names. So who are these two people that a man who was there and actually participated in this helped uh, Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, was the first vice president of the United States, second president of the United States, whose son later became a president of the United States. Who are these two people that he thinks were so important? Well, the first is uh, Reverend Jonathan Mayhew. He was a minister of West Church. And he, many years before the American Revolution, preached a very famous sermon on civil disobedience. Is there ever a time when a believer would disobey government? Is there ever a time when government strays from its rightful place and we would disobey? It takes you through passages in the Old Testament. The Hebrew midwives. Oh, these babies are born too fast. Takes you through the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, uh, the edict not to pray. In the New Testament, Acts 5.29, we will obey God rather than men. Well, it was not only a famous sermon, but what would happen back then is they didn't have CDs, they didn't have DVDs, so they would write out their sermons, they would reprint those, and that reprinted sermon went all up and down the eastern seaboard. So people that weren't even in the church began to, for the first time, think about the fact that if King George keeps coming down with these edicts, and if they continue to fire on American troops and things of that nature, perhaps we should think seriously about... American Revolution. Okay, well, who's Dr. Cooper? Well, you might know some of the people in his congregation. That would be Samuel Adams. That would be John Adams. That would be uh, John Hancock. Uh, that would be a variety of others. He had individuals in the church that were ready at a moment's notice to fight battles. They came to be known as the Minutemen, and many of the individuals in his church actually fought at Bunker Hill. I also have a story about uh, John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg, because I didn't want to just talk about just New England. So my favorite story about Virginia is here. John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg actually served in the um, Parliament, the House of Burgesses in Williamsburg. Anybody ever been to Williamsburg? If you ever have, you sat right where he sat. Um, he heard a guy by the name of Patrick Henry give a famous message. What was that? Give me liberty or give me death. Well, anyway, he now is hearing as he's sitting there in the House of Burgesses in Williamsburg about the fact that the British have fired on the Americans 
um, and he is convinced now that a revolutionary war is going to break out. So he rides back to his congregation, which is actually up in the northwest corner of Virginia, and arrives there Saturday night, and then Sunday morning, of course, none of his congregation knows the story, so he now preaches in Ecclesiastes 3 and gets to that passage of time for peace and a time for war. And he begins to tell them that we are headed towards a war uh, with Great Britain. And then, this is a famous painting, at the end, he then comes out of the pulpit, takes off his vestry garments, and underneath he is wearing the uniform of an officer in the Continental Army. And then calls for the men to come and join him. And 300 of the men actually come and join with him. He fights with George Washington in Boston, all the way up to Trenton, all the way to Yorktown. And, of course, becomes a major general in the Continental Army. Meanwhile, his brother rejects all this and says, you know, you should not be involved in politics. You shouldn't be involved in the army. Then he gets kicked out of his pulpit in New York and eventually turns out that both John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg and Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg actually serve in Congress. If you go to Capitol, um, there are statues of these two individuals. At least they used to be there. I think Nancy Pelosi is taking some of them down. But if they're still there, you can see both of these individuals up there. And interesting enough, Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg changes his mind about getting involved in politics because he becomes the first Speaker of the House in the House of Representatives. Matter of fact, if you ever get a tour there and walk into the Speaker's chamber, turn around, you'll see his post, uh, his picture and painting up there as well. And if you ever go to the archives, you will see the Declaration of Independence, you'll see the United States Constitution, and you'll see the Bill of Rights. And you'll see that only two people signed the Bill of Rights, then-President John Adams and Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. Pretty interesting. Let's move on, though. If you find yourself saying, okay, you got some good stories here, but we don't have time for them, I put together a little booklet. I think we might even have one here, but if not, I can bring some more in the future. Um, the stories of some of the patriot preachers. It is an incredible story of how these individuals were speaking out against the despotism of George III, and this is why many times those British regulars called pastors and preachers the Black Regiment because it was the ideas and the messages and the sermons in the 18th century that really motivated them to go and to actually engage in the American Revolution. In the interest of time, let me also mention one other. We have a section in here uh, as well about uh, colonial education. John 8:32. you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And this was a theme for the education, because in New England, for example, they actually had what's called the New England Primer. I got a copy of that, and I'll be glad to lend it out to anybody if you'd like to read it, because even when they were teaching things like the ABCs, A, in Adam's fall we send all, B, heaven to find the B, Bible mind, C, Christ crucified for sinners died. You can see that even teaching something as simple as the ABCs, they used that to teach theology. They had the Westminster Shorter Catechism. They had some of the hymns of Isaac Watts. And this was something that was used to educate young children. Um, then if you go to some of the major universities, Harvard University was founded because of the generosity of a man by the name of John Harvard. But if you look, and this actually is talked about in the book, in the laws and statutes, this is what was required if you were to go to Harvard. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies. 
So what is the goal of your studies at Harvard University? To know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Yale University, I actually have a copy of that regulations, and it's, uh, if you turn the page over, it's on the second page. This was the requirement for students at Yale College at that time. All scholars shall live religious, godly, and blameless lives according to the rules of God's word, diligently reading the Holy Scriptures, the fountain of life and truth, and constantly attend upon all the duties of religion, both in public and secret. You can see how important religion and especially a commitment to Christian values were. One other one that's uh, in the book is, again, one of the famous prayers in America, because when you had the first prayer of the Continental Congress, I use Psalm 35 here, you had a problem. Because when they got together for the time to actually begin, there was a question, because you have Anglicans and Congregationalists, you had Puritans, you had a few Baptists, uh, you had uh, Quakers, you had all sorts of religious diversity, and yet it was suggested that they should open their session in prayer. But who do we get? Well, they finally decided they would let uh, Reverend Jacob Duche lead in prayer. And of course, that was the passage that he used. And it was so powerful that these individuals, this is a painting drawn later, where these men were on their knees. They prayed for almost an hour. They were crying. They were calling out to God. You know, you hear people say today that all the founders were deists. Those sure dedicated deists, I have to say, with spending that much time in prayer. Matter of fact, they were so struck by that, they decided that they would open every morning at the Continental Congress with prayer. And that began to be the tradition of chaplains in the United States Congress. You think of this as well, you know, after the um, revolution is beginning now, after about five months, you know, George Washington would fight and lose, fight and lose, and he was completely uh, losing, and they had been pushed off of uh, Manhattan Island, off of New Jersey. Now they're on the other side of a very important river, you might remember, right? Um, and um, at this point, there was a decide, uh, decision that Congress would then set aside December 11th 1776 for a day of prayer, fasting, and repentance. And then they came upon this idea of crossing the Delaware with all that ice and everything, and they wanted Princeton, they wanted Trenton, and then those that were maybe going to leave decided to stay with the army. They had some other difficult times, Valley Forge and others, but many people point back, and George Washington himself points back to that time of prayer that might have been the turning point he feels spiritually in this whole issue of the American Revolution. This is a copy of a proclamation by then now President uh, George Washington calling for a day of thanksgiving and to express God's uh, governance and also God's providence in his life and he was convinced that God had protected him and the nation and allowed them to be so successful. Let me kind of wind it down for the morning, and then we'll talk about where we go from here. But if you go from the Puritans and the Pilgrims and even the First Great Awakening and then the American Revolution, you also have two documents that are very important. And the first is the Declaration of Independence. Now, what's the difference between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution? I've oftentimes said that the Declaration of Independence tells you the why of American government, and the Constitution tells you the how of American government. 
The declaration drafted by Thomas Jefferson, I already mentioned John Adams, Roger Sermon, Benjamin Franklin, and others, and uh, they actually, in the declaration, once again, we see how they acknowledge God. You see, first of all, the fact that the Declaration of Independence talks about the fact that we follow the laws of nature and nature's God. I'll come back to that in just a minute because that's a direct quote, ultimately, from John Locke. Second of all, they said that we are endowed by their creator with what? Certain unalienable rights that among these are what? Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. There's God mentioned again. Number three, they recognized that they were engaged in civil disobedience, and so they wanted to make sure they had the right attitude, so they were appealing to the supreme judge of the world that they might do the right thing. And then finally, they also appealed to divine providence because now they were engaged in a battle against the greatest military power of the 18th century. So you can see four times, either directly or indirectly, mentioning God. Not bad for a Thomas Jefferson who everybody calls as nothing more than a Unitarian or a Deist. Where did that idea of law of nature and law of God come from? Well, that comes from John Locke. This is a copy of that uh, Two Treatises of Government. You ever take the time to read the Two Treatises of Government, you're going to see Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse being cited because he talks about the law of nature as God's general revelation that we see around us, and the law of God is God's revelation in God's Word. And so you see that as well. But in addition to that, Thomas Jefferson said, certainly, I borrowed from people like uh, John Locke, but also borrowed from his friend, George Mason. If you've ever been to Williamsburg, you've been in his house, no doubt. Uh, George Mason's known for the drafter of the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Um, he also is known for the Second Amendment. He, you know, he really believed that we should have an armed citizenry, so that's another little footnote there. But when you read the Declaration of Rights for Virginia, does it sound at all like the Declaration of Independence? That all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Thomas Jefferson was honest enough to say, I borrowed from many other things that existed at that time, and you can certainly see that as well. Paul Johnson, I mentioned again, said there's no question the Declaration of Independence was to those who signed it a religious as well as secular act, and that the Revolutionary War had the approbation of divine providence. Finally, the Constitution. Uh, that verse is, uh, unless they build the house, uh, you know, and found that on biblical principles, they labor in vain. And so the idea here is, again, these Christian ideas show up in the Constitution. When I was at Georgetown University, my major professor, along with professors at the University of Houston and LSU, went together and collected 15,000 writings from the founding era. People writing back and forth as they were talking about establishing the Constitution, establishing the country. They found that there were 3,000 citations in those writings, and the Bible was quoted more than anything else. The Bible was quoted 34% of the time. As Samuel Adams writes to John Adams, as John Adams writes to uh, John Hancock, as James Madison writes to George Washington, they're quoting the Bible and Bible verses. But here's something more interesting. If you go back and look at those verses, those verses actually came from the sermons of the 18th century. This is one of the books on my shelf, Political Sermons of the American Founding Era. Yes, 34% of the time the Bible was quoted, but most of those references came from the sermons of the day. 
the pastors who were preaching in the 18th century, and these reprinted sermons were going around, was the documents used to draft the Constitution of the United States. And so the point I'm making is, is that uh, you can see the incredible Christian influence. John Witherspoon was Princeton of what today we call Princeton. Back then it was New Jersey. Uh, he taught James Madison, the founder, really, if you will, of the Constitution. 77 members of the Con- Congress, Supreme Court justices. Even though he was a pastor, he also signed the Declaration of Independence and preached a very famous sermon that convinced many that were sort of on the fence whether or not to actually sign the Declaration of Dominion of Providence over the Affairs of Men. And again, if you want to try to understand the Constitution, probably the best thing to read would be the Federalist Papers. Here's a printing of that. The Federalist Papers actually are probably the most famous newspaper columns ever written. And they were written in New York to convince the state of New York to ratify the Constitution. They were written by James Madison, oftentimes called the father of the Constitution, and also an individual that served as president, and also the one that pulled together the notes of the Constitutional Convention. Alexander Hamilton, everybody knows Alexander Hamilton now because he's on Broadway, right? You know, but nevertheless was a a lieutenant uh, for George Washington, uh, our Treasury Secretary, might have become president, but was killed in a duel by Aaron Burr, and then John Jay. And I said, who's John Jay? Well, at the time when John Jay wrote the Federalist Papers, he was the vice president of the American Bible Society. Later, he actually became the president of the American Bible Society, and he became the first chief justice of the United States. Um, Pretty interesting. The president of the American Bible Society becoming a chief justice of the United States. Can you imagine that today of the current president of the American Bible Society serving in the United States uh, Supreme Court? I think it shows you what has happened. Finally, you know, we talked about 56 men that were the signers of the Declaration. You had 55 men who were at the Constitutional Convention. Only about 39 of them actually signed the Constitution. But again, how dedicated were they to Christian principles? Well, Emmy Bradford, who used to teach right here at the University of Dallas, actually went back and looked at their biographies and concluded that at least 50 of the 55 men who, he says, signed the Constitution, theoretically they didn't all sign it, but they all were part of the drafting of it, were those who endorsed the Christian faith. So again, you can see that I think for anybody, you'd have to say that Christian values were really important in the founding of this republic. Wouldn't you think they would be important in the maintenance of this public? So I thought I'd end just real quickly with some of the challenges that we face today. Because if you haven't figured it out, the Constitution and the founding of this country are under attack, aren't they? And I thought I'd just identify two of those. First of all, Howard Zinn wrote a book many years ago called A People's History of the United States. Sometimes it's used as a textbook. He's a Marxist, and he pulls out all the negative aspects of this country. If you take a typical history course today at a university, you'll probably learn about all the things like, you know, the Salem witch trials and slavery and uh, the Indian Wars, all of which are very dark chapters in American history and do need to be taught. But you won't hear much about American exceptionalism, all the good that this country has done or the freedom that we have. And a lot of that goes back to Howard Zinn. Uh, now there is, of course, what is called the Zinn uh, Educational Fund, 
And they have now actually put together a a list of uh, now they've already come up with 4,000 teachers, public school teachers, that have signed it saying, we don't care if the state legislature bans the teaching of critical race theory. We are promising we are going to teach critical race theory in the schools, whether you pass that in the legislature or not. So you can see there is quite a division about some of these kinds of issues right now. You also have, of course, the 1619 Project that has been put together by the New York Times. And that argument is, is that America didn't start in 1789 with the Constitution. America didn't even start in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. America didn't even start in 1620 with the Pilgrims. No, America started in 1619 when a few slaves got off a ship in Jamestown. And so really the whole history of America is a history of slavery. The American Revolution was fought to actually keep slavery legal. By the way, even secular historians have been so critical of some of the uh, errors that have been said in this regard. But again, if you go to many school districts today, you will see curriculum that have been put together by Howard Zinn, curriculum that's been put together by the New York Times in the 1619 Project. And um, this is, I think, one of the great battles that we will be fighting today in the 21st century. You might say, well, has anybody been trying to counter that? Well, there's some. One of those was when uh, President Trump was in office, he actually established the 1776 Commission to provide kind of a balance to some of this revisionist history. Uh, Many of the people that served on that commission were individuals that I've interviewed, very qualified individuals indeed, and they published their first report in January of 2021. On the first day in office... President Joe Biden dissolved the 1776 commission. And so, as I'll point out in just a minute, some of these people said, well, we don't have to have the government endorsing this. We'll do it on our own. And so they're engaged in these kinds of activities. But I think you'd have to see that although this country was founded on faith, most young people don't know this. As a matter of fact, I'm sure I've said a few things that you've said, I didn't know this. And it's not being taught sometimes in the government schools. Sometimes it's not even been taught in the Christian schools because lots of times teachers themselves don't know that. And that's why I'm hoping that if nothing else, we can be a generation to teach this godly heritage to our children and grandchildren. Now, I've talked about the positives. As I said before, we have some very dark chapters in American history. If you go to the Probe website, you're going to see a whole week of programs I've done on slavery, a whole week of programs I've done on the Indian Wars. So uh, we're not uh, covering over or whitewashing any of that. As a matter of fact, there are very good arguments that people say we should teach more about slavery because we teach a very truncated view in some of the schools today. But if you might say, okay, I don't feel real equipped. Are there some places I can go to get some information? And I'll end with this. First of all, at Probe Ministries, you'll see uh, weeks of programs we've done on the Declaration, on the Constitution, on American history. Um, matter of fact, you'll see a PowerPoint presentation somewhat similar to this that's already there, as well as many others. David Barton and uh, Tim Barton was just speaking the other day at Gateway. Uh, the Barton family have what's called Wall Builders, which is located in Alito, Texas. 
If you ever go out there, they have some of the most incredible documents from the early colonial period that you can actually look at. Marshall Foster's been on the program with me, and um, he's not been real well known until he partnered more recently with Kirk Cameron, and they produced a whole series of films um, educating people, and so you can go to the World History Institute. Uh, Matthew Spaulding was one of those individuals that was on that 1776 commission, and he is with the Heritage Foundation and has done an outstanding job of uh, talking about our history, especially our political history. And again, one of the things I think we need more of are very prominent African-Americans to address this issue. So let me commend to you Bob Woodson. Bob Woodson, African-American individual that has done a great job of studying history. He was also on the 1776 Commission, and he's one of those ones that said, you know what, I'm going to take my time to go and educate uh, people in the African-American community and the Hispanic community and other communities about some of the history of America. So he has created this website, 1776unites.com. So the good news is there's some people out there that are actually wanting to equip you so that you can pass on some of this godly heritage uh, to your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, and your nephews. And if nothing else, on this American Day of Revolution, a great opportunity to talk about this in a very significant way. Just as a preview, you might say, okay, what are we going to cover the next couple of weeks? Gary Frazier will be here next week, and then in two weeks... Fred asked if I would do something on archaeology. That's my booklet on a biblical view of archaeology. I've done this before, but I've got all sorts of new archaeological finds, including I had somebody in my studio this last week, a professor of Old Testament, who gave me a few more things to add about this. I'm telling you, every time a spade or a shovel goes into uh, the uh, soil in Israel, we have more and more confirmation of this whole idea that the indeed the Bible is reliable. So do one on archaeology, and then I've had one or two of you say, okay, you keep talking about this critical race theory. Can you explain what that is? And that's our new booklet on that. So we will cover some of those in the next couple of weeks. So that's a preview of coming attractions. Let me turn it back over to Parker.